Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are you looking for a community of like-minded folks to connect with on your path of healing, growth, and transformation? Starting December 1st, I'll be facilitating a bi-weekly online group to offer support for anyone on their medicine path. Whether you are a new or experienced psychedelic explorer, a yoga or meditation practitioner, or simply curious about how these practices can support embodied awakening and personal transformation, I invite you to join us every other Sunday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a practice, inquiry, and integration circle. Every gathering will include some kind of somatic breathwork or meditation practice, group sharing, and compassionate inquiry held in a safe, respectful, and confidential container intended to support each individual's process of insight, integration, and alignment. This circle will be open to all new and current Medicine Path Patreon subscribers at the $10 level. To sign up, please visit patreon.com forward slash medicinepath and click become a patron. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with Cree ethnobotanist and traditional healer Jasmine Perosic. Jasmine serves Northern Ontario Indigenous populations in Canada through teaching and aiding in the remembering of plant medicine teachings lost due to colonization. Her work has carried her to South America, where she learns Amazonian plant medicines from Maestro Juan Flores Salazar. 
Jasmine is the founder of Mayan Gunanung Healing Center in Canada and continues to study and work with entheogens and other plant medicines to aid remediating Western drug-related and food illnesses in indigenous populations. I'm grateful to Jasmine for agreeing to speak with me because I know that the use of entheogens can be a controversial topic in northern indigenous populations, and I think that she's doing some important and courageous work in helping to heal the effects of colonization in First Nations communities here in Canada by becoming a bridge between the North and South American indigenous plant medicine traditions. Also, I feel that there's a real lack of both female and indigenous voices in the plant medicine media space, and I'm honored that she would take the time to speak with me and share her stories with you, the listener. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and other episodes, and invite you to suggest other guests who you feel might not be getting the attention they deserve. Feel free to send me an email at hello at brianjames.ca with any comments, questions, or suggestions you have for future episodes. Now, please, sit back and enjoy this conversation with Jasmine Perosic on The Medicine Path. Hi, I'm here with Jasmine Perosic. Did I get that right, Jasmine? Yes. Okay, good. Um, Thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to have you on the podcast because recently a mutual friend of ours uh, posted a video of a presentation that you did at Breaking Convention, I think from last year. And first of all, it was kind of out of the blue for me. I'd never heard of you or your work. And it was really exciting for me because you're talking about something that's kind of close to my heart. And that's um, uh, medicinal use of entheogens by Canadian First Nations or Indigenous people. And it was a story that was completely new to me. And so I'm just really interested. I don't know a whole lot about you, but uh, I want to talk to you and and learn about you. So maybe uh, for me and the listeners, if you could start just by introducing yourself and tell us where you come from and how you got to where you are now. Okay, that's a big one. Well, uh, we introduce ourselves traditionally uh, in our language. I introduce myself as Mayangan Anankwe, an Adishnikas. So I say, my name is Wolfstar Woman, and I come from Eagle Clan. And I was born and raised in Kenora, Ontario, which is kind of the, I like to say, central Canada, the center of Canada. Uh, really close to Winnipeg, so I I go to the cities a lot of the time. I live in a small a small town, and I am First Nations. My community is Norway House in Manitoba, which is a far reach from from Kenora, but uh, that's where our lineage comes from. And I was raised Christian, uh, just like many many Indigenous people in Northern Ontario, is that we follow a, a Christian path. So um, how I got into what I'm, I'm doing, it, it's kind of against the grain even for my, my family because we were raised Christian, uh, but still on the land. So we still ate the fish. My mom still taught me all of the trees and everything, but we never used them the way we did before. 
before Western medicine. And it wasn't until I was probably 26 uh, when the doctors told me that I was sick forever, uh, which was a, an awful thing for a young person. They believed that I had MS, have MS, but I wouldn't express it until my mid-30s. And so I got into a very deep depressive state and I was just looking for any answer to try to help me. And I came across, uh, not even that I came across, I had these terrible feelings like suicidal ideations because my, I felt like my life was over. And so I went to a counselor at my university because I was in school and the counselor directed me to one person that directed me to another person that led me to a ceremony in Winnipeg, a Camarampi or ayahuasca ceremony in Winnipeg. And I drank the medicine and the teacher, the Maestro Juan Flores, what came to me and told me, you got to come to Peru. Everybody's got to come to Peru, but you got to come. And so I left five months later, I, I took off and I went to Peru to go meet this, the man who came in my, my lucid dreams. And he was shinier than I ever thought. He was just a, a shining example of how we all want to be every moment, like just happy, smiling. And if you're not pleased with something, you just walk away. Like it's a, he's a beautiful man. So I, I visited there. I went through some of their big celebrations that were just so inviting. And I felt like a family member. And then I asked him at that time if I could be a student. And he's like, well, you got lots of time, not right now, you know. And that was really cr crushing as well, because I'm like, I found the way. I had the, the novice excitement of an ayahuasca ceremony. I'm like, I got to devote my whole life to this. Well, I didn't take no for an answer. I went six months later, I went with um, Jim Sanders and he was just there for a brief moment, but he was able to translate for me and he asked if I could be an apprentice and Maestro agreed. He said, yes. And I'm like, okay, I don't speak Spanish. I don't speak Ashaninga. I don't, I don't know what this means. And then, um, you know, I, I, we spent a lot of time dieting, quiet in the jungle eating very cleanly. I got very skinny, you know, it's just, um, cleaning out your body so that you can invite the knowledge in. And it took a lot of time. I was there for five weeks the first time. Then I returned, you know, six months later for another three weeks. And then every six months for about three years, I, I went to visit and then I was completing my master's thesis. So I took three years kind of not off, but where I just stayed in Canada and conducted ceremonies and helped other people to heal while I was finishing my work. And then, um, and then the wonderful things started happening. Once I, I realized who I was, there was a point in my ceremonies where I became solid inside myself. And then all of these opportunities came for where I could help my people. In um, Jim Sanders' video, Tonkiri Chapter 1, mm -hmm. there's an elder, a Cree elder, uh, um, Don Cardinal. And Don Cardinal, you know, like my first year into the drinking ayahuasca, um, 
Don Cardinal's drum came to me, like someone who had Don Cardinal's drum and he had passed years before someone had his hand drum and sang me like four or five songs on it. And I was like, okay, I'm going the right way. And what Don Cardinal asked is that Juan Flores help his people, please help my people because there is there's no one here that can help i don't know or else we would be out already so i guess that's part of the what i'm charged to do i guess you could say is is that i'm i'm here to help my people hmm. yeah beautiful thanks so much for sharing that story mm -hmm. And uh, just for listeners who might not remember or may not have listened to earlier episodes, I had uh, Jim Sanders on the podcast uh, a little while back. You can look for that. But um, Jasmine's talking about a center in Peru called Mayuntayaku, which is run by Maestro Juan Flores, who I've talked about many times because I absolutely fell in love with him. He, to me, he's the epitome of uh, a caring, uh, a caring healer with like tons of integrity. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes, definitely. That's the word, integrity. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you you receive this calling from it, really interesting. So you're in uh, Peru doing ceremonies, and you get a vision of one of your elders from back home. Um, now, how did you start to bring these two worlds together once you received that calling? It is the calling card, is that they just came together. Um, yeah, the, the events, the synchronicities. So I just followed all of the, the patterns that I was seeing in my life. Like I saw Don Cardinal's drum. I saw um, people that had come across Juan Flores or people that had come across Jim Sanders, like there was almost a, a very direct path, an, an easy direct path for me. It's not easy for everyone. If you're, if you're fighting the path, it's not the way. Hmm. Like if it's easy and uh, you can walk uh, proudly through it, it, it's the way. Mm hmm Mm. So what were some of the openings that started to happen for you? How did you start to, uh, to help your people back home? I got a, f I was conducting ceremonies at this healing center in Thunder Bay, like different, different kinds of ceremonies. And, uh, I just lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Cause <laughs> We were just talking about how you started to help your people. and Oh, yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, I was working at this healing center, conducting ceremonies, and I'm really good friends with the, the lodge keeper. And she knew somebody that was searching for someone. This, there was just a man just called me out of the blue and said, hey, do you know things about plants? And I'm like, yeah. And I could tell by his accent that he was northern i'm like yeah i know stuff about plants he's like are you willing to come to my community and i'm like yeah no problem send me a plane ticket i'll i'll jump on a plane and, and come see you i didn't realize what i was doing when i did that i had no idea it was a week before i was to defend my master's thesis and um, i'm called into a community crisis like there were two suicides in this community 
and he was actually calling me for crisis remediation using the plants. I didn't know. Hmm. I didn't choose to do that type of work until I was asked to do it. And then I realized, absolutely, I can do this work. So I went up to the community. Uh, its name is Wapkika First Nation. And in January 2017, they had two young girls that had a suicide pact and had killed themselves. They were successful two days apart. Mm. I, arrived, um, I arrived the day after the second suicide because I was called the day of the first suicide. And he's like, you need to get here now. And I, I couldn't leave at the time. And then I left two days after that. And then when I arrived, I walked in on a funeral. And it was, it's not like a funeral that you would see at a Catholic place. It was a community gathering. Everybody in the room holds each other and they cry and they cry loud, like they wail. And it was heartbreaking because that was my first introduction to this work was this crushing, heartbreaking, unsettling, like you cannot believe this stuff happens in the world kind of activity. And so the, the man who hired me was, is Oji Cree, still very good friends with the man. He, um, he turned out to be my, my boss later. But I went in and all I could do was make this plant tea that has uh, chemical compounds that have a sedative effect. So I just gave them a sedative and I walked out. That was all I could do. Just like my teacher. My teacher will just give you the tea and then he walks away. Like You don't need to do anything. The tea's doing it now. Mm. So... I just let my tea do the work and I had to make gallons of it. Like I thought I was just going to make, you know, four liters. No, I probably made like a hundred gallons, like two giant pots um, of tea. And then I, I stayed there for three days and their crisis counselors took me up. They didn't even know what kind of education I had. It didn't, it didn't matter. I didn't know at the time. Um, and I started working with some of the children, just listening to their stories and during that time, I realized that the crisis, the, the counselors remediating the crisis were in crisis equally as bad as the, the community. One lady was on a, a drug called Suboxone, where she was trying to get off of these opiates that she had got stuck on through Western medicine. And I, was, I had to share a room with her because there was very tight spaces in the community at the time. There was, you know, 30 counselors for... 10 high-risk people. So hmm. um, I stayed in the room with her and she begged me not to tell her boss that she was on Suboxone because she was in pain and her joints were burning and there wasn't anything she could do. And I'm like, you can't work like this. You can't help the people. You're not helping anyone. Um, so once I got into all of those, like there were so many instances such as that that I got into and I realized, oh my God, I need to drink the medicine. I need to, to drink the ayahuasca. I need some direction. So I, I left the community after the crisis. It, they were in crisis mode for a year and a half after that. I'll, I'll just make that note. And I continued to work there. But after I left, I, I went and defended my master's thesis, got my master's. And then I was like, oh my goodness, what am I, what am I going to do? I got called by science firms. I wrote a film, you know, narrated it, did the music to it. And that was a really great experience. 
but I was still being called to these communities. So the man who invited me to Wapakika uh, was the health director for five communities. And that's really interesting. The health director, the person who was supposed to push the Western medicine or the Western medical model uh, was choosing uh, plant medicine over it. And he knows he was going against the grain. And, you know, we talk about it. Mm. We talk about it. And he, and, but he believed in everything. I don't, I don't know why he believed in me because he had no background about me either. He was just like, we need help. He'll reach out to anywhere. Mm. So I worked for his uh, company. It was a tribal council. And I worked as a bush medicine practitioner. I, I didn't know what to call myself. I'm a medicine woman, but um, everybody else has to call you a medicine woman. I can't call myself that. Right. And, and just to pause here for a sec. <clears throat> so you told me before we started recording that your, your undergrad degree is in anthropology, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then your master's was in what? Biology. Okay. So yeah. you, weren't, you weren't like a trained counselor or social worker. No. Yeah. So this no. was really kind of out of the blue for you too, to get these calls for help. That's right. It didn't make any sense, but I understand now looking back that it made so much sense. It, I was the only one that could have helped. Mm. Now, do you think, because um, I can't imagine that kind of thing happening in a typical Western healthcare system that you would even be considered as a support staff, because, you know, I've tried to get jobs in different Western organizations myself and you need like bare minimum of a social work master's degree and sometimes even a phd now even to be exactly entry-level community helper so it seems like there was more of an openness in the first nations healthcare system i guess to invite someone like you in right absolutely you know i i wondered that myself and then i i you know, when you go to a First Nation, you exit Canada. Hmm. You're not in Canada anymore. Those, those reserved lands, those are other countries. That's why they're First Nations. And that's why there's multiple First Nations. So we're all, you know, living, we're, we're nations within nations. That's hmm. really what it is. So the medical systems that can pervade in these, these reserves, it can be whatever they want. You don't need to have a teaching degree to be a teacher. You don't need to be any, you just need to have the experience and the wherewithal. Like to be a language teacher, to teach OG Cree, you just need to speak OG Cree. They don't, they don't care about the piece of paper you have. Man, I, I think that's the way it should be in, in all communities because sometimes the best healers aren't the ones who've gone through the, uh, the kind of typical system where you're getting degrees and all of that, you know, they're just people who have done their own work and are open hearted and able to be really present with people and who sincerely care about helping others. Like those to me are the only qualifications that really matter. That's absolutely correct. It is, you know, I got the, uh, I got the Western degrees because you need to be a cog in the wheel for a little bit to kind of understand how to get out of the wheel. Mm. Like I had a priest when I was a kid and he said, the only way is through. So go through it and get out. 
which is a funny thing for a, a priest to say. I'm going to tell you, he's not a priest anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he got out. He got out. Yeah, it was the only way out was through. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So how long have you been doing this work in the First Nations? Uh, it's been about, it's about a little more than three years now. Mm -hmm. I think it's in January technically is my three year anniversary. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is and is this right? Yeah. Yeah. It'll be 2020. So, mm -hmm. um, is, is this like your full-time employment? Uh, yeah, I work on contracts. So, um, in those, uh, tribal communities, I, I have to say it like that because I worked for a place called Shibogama tribal council. So I refer to it that way because I, I came really close with the people and the people really enjoyed me. So I, I don't work for the council anymore, but the communities still call me to go there independently. So I work on contract. I started, I actually incorporated a not-for-profit and I haven't really been functioning with it other than just these tiny little contracts. And I, I, I did the not-for-profit so that I could one day build a he the healing center and get funding. And mm -hmm. those are the checks and balances for, for that kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it's, I'm full-time healer. That's just what I do. And people yeah. call me all the time. I'll take whatever money, like, or I won't take any, like it just, it doesn't matter as long as I can help. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, here's a point where I'm going to pause because now I got to go pee. Okay, great. Okay, <laughs> so I can get coffee then. Yeah, if you need to stock up, I'll be right back. Okay, perfect. Great. Okay, so I thought it'd be interesting if we talked a little bit about the nature of the healing work that you do with plants in in your first nations communities so could you tell us a little bit about what kind of plants that you're working with mm. i use all the plants so anything that's local to the area so it like if there's a plant that lives close to you then you should probably drink it that's what i i tell everybody if there's something that's you're constantly seeing then drink the plant and learn from it so i just teach everybody the way my teacher taught me. Now, I don't speak my teacher's language. I don't speak Ashninga or Spanish or I sing Spanish, but um, he taught me how to learn the plants. And so I teach everybody else how to learn the plants. And most of the time they're, they're looking for remedies, which is fine. Like I, I, I make a lot of remedies. So mostly in the boreal forest region. So where I'm in Kenora, there's different plants because there's a number of forest regions that kind of intersect in this region. So we have cactuses, you know, from cactuses to black spruce. Hmm. Uh, so it's, a, it's quite variable where I am right now. So going north, it's strictly boreal forest flora. So things like um, black spruce and balsam, tamarack. We use a lot of the main trees, like I, I call them the doctors. And then some of the other little plants, so like honeysuckle plants, or if you want me to list them, there's quite a few. Yeah, no, I mean, what are, um, it's interesting you mentioned the trees because something that I encountered in South American plant medicine healing is 
the use of trees uh, as like master teachers. Um, so the paleros, the the maestros who work mm-hmm. mostly with trees, I was you know it's really interesting to me because I went to South America, was introduced to this idea of trees as really powerful teachers and really powerful medicine, having uh, been living on Vancouver Island where. I just kind of intuitively and naturally developed a really strong relationship with cedar. Uh, I was living in a place where there was giant cedars all around and I started to do woodworking with cedar. Um, and I just started to have this like love relationship with cedar where I would, uh, use it for different things and just kind of getting to know this tree and then going to sweat lodge and seeing how cedars used in sweat lodge. It opened up a whole nother world to me beyond um, just thinking about plants as, you know, something we might have in a tea, uh, you know, maybe like flowers or, or leaves of a, of a ground plant. Now thinking about trees as part of that whole world too, and seeing that they have like kind of a special place as like these really powerful, strong uh, teachers in medicine. So it's interesting to hear you talk about using trees. Uh, maybe could you say a little bit more about that from your experience? There's a, there's a tree that we use very often in the northern communities. It's, uh, the traditional name is shikopiatic. And shikopiatic is the black spruce, like I, I had mentioned. This tree like will peel the bark. doesn't matter what time of year. It's always better to pick bark in uh, these colder regions when you're in the spring, when the, the sap starts to flow again. But you can pick it any time of year if you needed help, if you needed help. I know there's a lot of traditional people here that wouldn't agree with me about that, but when you need help, they're there. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll drink the bark or the root of the tree, depending on, on what, what the intention is. But when we drink the bark, it's... It, cleans and heals the whole body, but then it heals the mind. And the shikopiatic has given me songs. Uh, it's, it has a tune, very high-pitched, sweet song. And I'm not sure if any, everybody hears what I hear when I, I sit with the tree, but when you commune that way with the tree, like you would in, in South America, you probably came across the Camaranaco tree. Mm-hmm. Camaranaco is huge and beautiful, and to drink it is so invigorating and exciting, and it's a really powerful teacher. And it's, it, it was what taught me how to use the barks, was that the bark of that tree and the tamamori. They're very thick barks. Um, it, it's... Uh, it's, it's always hard to, to try to delineate how it is that I'm feeling or to express these, I guess, etheric symbols that can't be expressed with words. It's, it's really tough to try to express, like, why that tree is so powerful. Mm-hmm. That, that tree is the main tree of everything. It will calm you. It is the sweetest, calmingest tree. Well, it's a person, just like the Camaranaco tree. It's it's a, it's a healer that just came here and it took, came here to watch and to sing and to help. It does all these wonderful things. But so what I do is I teach others how to get the bark 
and how to make the brew and how to drink it and just drink it for health or drink it for visions or drink it for whatever reason. Hmm. Yeah. That one specifically. But I think the most important thing is there was a, I don't know if you remember when H1N1 in 2009 was kind of like big, mm-hmm. the avian flu. Yeah. And everybody's like, get your vaccines, get your vaccines. And then uh, I think somewhere in Manitoba, like in Winnipeg, they shipped body bags up to those northern communities <laughs> because oh, wow. they expected that everybody would die of the flu because they couldn't send vaccines or something. I'm not sure. Uh, but that crushed the people that crushed my family in the Northern community. And even though it was in Manitoba, Ontario felt it. Then people in the North, they talk about it. Like it was their community that it happened to. They're like, they're going to send us body bags. They're not going to send us medicine. Mm. So the elders in this one community, Casabonica, they, uh, they responded and they responded by making tea, like a really strong brew of the mountain ash. And, they didn't know what the tree was because like, it's the young people that were telling me, like, young people, I mean, 40 to 50. And the other elders, there's like this generation gap where this knowledge is lost. But the young people be like, the elder used this tree and they pointed to it. I saw the berries. I recognized the tree. And they use that, that tree as uh, their vaccine. And then nobody got sick in that community. No one got sick. So everybody highlights this medicine. This is like very powerful for the people. So when Western medicine can't help us, hopefully we'll continue to learn and we won't lose any more knowledge because the elders are dying. There's a generation gap. The young people don't totally know in the Northern communities. um, They don't mind me teaching them, but if I was to teach where I'm from, I am about 40 years too young. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I am so happy to be welcomed there. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, um, I, I've, I've been educated on this topic over the past few years and, uh, especially when I was living on Vancouver Island, but a lot of listeners may not understand why this generational gap of knowledge has occurred. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit about, what's happened in Canada due to colonization and the loss of these traditional practices? Oh, it's heart wrenching. Yeah. Uh, for, for all of us. Uh, well, you know, 150 years ago, it was a little bit longer, but we'll just say in Canada, 150 years ago, the, uh, the Jesuits came and they had a teaching They said, give us a child from zero to seven and we'll show you the man. So they, you know, the Western thought created these schools and everybody from those first nations, what they wanted to do was to breed the Indian out of you. And I, I, we don't speak about it that way uh, anymore. We don't use the word Indian, but I just, it's derogatory. So I need to use it because it means a lot. So you breed the Indian out of the child. If you have them from zero to seven, then I'll show you the man. Well, they didn't get the children until they were six. And the children, when they went to these residential schools were sexually molested, uh, like very badly. And some of them died from their sexual injuries. And it wasn't just the children that were being sexually abused. It was everyone. So 
I like to think the reason why uh, a lot of the the sexual abuse happened was because it was an inherited thing. Like the priests were were sexually abused as well, and they inherited a perversion that they just passed on because of it's like an addiction. So this happened in residential schools, and number of the people even up to today from 150 years ago up to today, still suffer from the effects of being in those schools. And some children never came out alive. Most people don't speak their language who are in an urban center. They speak their language when they're in the northern communities because uh, because of the, and, and I don't like the word isolation because they're not isolated communities. Mm-hmm. They are definitely a, in the right place. We are isolated here in the urban centers. Yeah. I so I like that. to say remote. <laughs> I hate this, this term that people just throw around. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Oh, in the oh, middle of nowhere. It's not nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like the only place where there's healthy water, healthy, clean air, clean animals. There isn't garbage everywhere. You know, like it's, it's where, it's where the healing can happen in such a deep way because we're, they're not infringed upon, um, by the same things as urban folk uh, mm-hmm. get infringed upon. Yeah, like, and, the food is the main thing. Yeah, and just to bring something in perspective too, something that I learned uh, in some cultural bridging workshops that I did out west was shocking to me. But the last residential school in Canada closed. I think it was in the nineteen nineties. Ninety six. So, yeah, this isn't ancient history. No. Yeah, so this is like the wounding is still very fresh. Yeah, like some of the people are still very young. And there were even priests who, uh, there was one priest who conducted, you know, boy camps, like these camps for boys, like Boy Scout camps. And this man raped more than 500 people in these communities that I, I work in. And this guy's met alive, Ralph Rowe in Surrey, BC. Hmm. I just, I don't understand. I don't understand. I think if I understood, I might be that man. I don't want to understand in in full. Mm, Why mm. did that happen? Why did that happen? They were all so affected, even all the people that I work with. So like when you're talking about like the generation gap, I have no idea why that happened. There's a, there's a gap, a 20 year gap where there's no people. Mm. And and so what, what, what that's led to is a, a, a break in the passing on of a lot of traditional knowledge uh, yeah. because of, um, I think like shame is a big part of it. People being a, a ashamed of their own heritage and practices. Well, they were told that they were supposed to be ashamed for, I was, like my family, I don't, we don't speak our language because we're not Indian. <laughs> Right. You know, you see how fair I am, but I don't look like my Ukrainian friends. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> and my, my dad was Ukrainian. Okay. So you're mixed race. Yeah, I'm mixed. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's breeding the Indian out of you. That's, that's what I am. Hmm. But it didn't work. Didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. I know it's, uh, it, it's a painful thing to talk about, but... Mm-hmm. I, I just know in my interactions with other uh, people of European heritage that this is an untold history. And so I just want to take the opportunity to, 
to educate people on, on what's happened. I want to thank you for that because nobody understands. They're always like, Oh, why are these dirty Indians on the street? And it's like their community was poisoned with mercury and they're not actually drunk. They actually have a neurological disorder and they can't walk. This yeah. is what's happening downtown Kenora. There's a lot of people with mercury poisoning from grassy narrows. Like this is a, an issue, a Canada wide issue. Yeah. All over Canada. And, um, you know, one of the things that was really instructional to me living on the West Coast, where I think it's the highest population of First Nations people, um, is that unlike where I grew up in Ontario, the reservations weren't way outside of town and you only went there for cheap gas and smokes. They were like right next to the cities and towns in mm -hmm. British Columbia. And when I got there, I was just confronted with such uh, racism uh, even the, the town that we first moved to, it's called Duncan and all the white people called it drunken because of <sighs> the native people there. It was, I, I couldn't believe that this was going on in, in Canada, which is considered such a kind of liberal and open-minded and progressive place. But th this is still going on. It's, it's so bad that nobody sees it. It's that, it's buried that deeply. You know, my sister, she lives on Vancouver Island. She lives in Comox. Mm -hmm. And she's always so proud that she lives in the land of plenty. She's always so proud about it. And I'm like, but what, why aren't you proud of your land? Well, I went to visit her and it's beautiful there. And the tradition's there and everybody's wonderful. And when, I, when I'm there, I'm like, oh my God, where are the sick native people? And I, I never, I don't see the sick native people like I do in, Kenora, the Kenora region. And then there's, there's it's funny because there, there's not really a, the, the separation between demographics like indigenous people and, you know, European Canadians. It's really there's healthy people and there's sick people. That's what I'm seeing rather than seeing the color of people's skin because obviously the color of my skin is not determining upon who I am. Um, yeah mm. these are these are just struggles that i constantly i constantly go through mm. you know this is something that i talked with uh jim sanders a little bit about and the work that he's now doing with his center tonkiri in using some of the medicines from south america to help the first nations people in the north heal from this generational trauma mm. Now, yes. can, can you talk about that and this, um, you know, it's kind of like this, this cultural meme in the psychedelic world of the eagle and the condor coming together. But ah. this, this is like where maybe it's actually happening with Maestro Juan coming up to visit with indigenous elders in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and really like truly literally bridging these two, uh, these two worlds. I love that you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, the, so the, the plants that we use to help anybody that's going through trauma, the, the main plant we use is tamamori, which is a, a very excellent, excellent plant. And it just clears the mind, just clears the mind. It forces a lot of blood flow in your body. Um, if you have any place that's really sick, like if you had bleeding gums, your gums would bleed. And then they, once you were done your diet, they, you'd have nice, healthy 
everything. Uh, we use a lot of that for the, the trauma remediation. I'm not, wait, I'm going to pause for a sec. I'm not sure. surprised because when I was at my Antiyaku, I brought a group of men down there for a men's retreat. And I think half the men were given Tamamuri by Maestro Juan. I, I think it's a plant that he really loves. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Tamamuri is uh, one of these big trees, one of these big Palo yes. medicines, right? Yes, it is. It, we, it is one of the Polaro medicines, like the Camaranaco or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So Very you're good. you're using that up here in the north? Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, Maestro makes um, concentrates for us, and we bring it. It's uh, completely legal, mm -hmm. and it's very effective, and you don't need to trip out to, to heal, you know? So that, that's the other strange thing about being in this field is there's some people that are looking for the experiential high or some people that are actually looking for healing and they don't want the high, but they got it. Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a strange thing, but yeah, tamamori is very very effective. I'm not surprised that they were given they were given that. Yeah, and so uh, how has that been received by First Nations communities here? Are they are they quite open to using medicines from other places? Um, no, if you're in an urban center and you come from a Madei tradition, Madei Madewin means following a path with heart. And that's like the uh, shamanic tradition in this region. They are absolutely not okay with that. You do not use medicine from another culture. You do not. It's cultural appropriation. It's all this urban garbage in my head <laughs> um, that's not helpful. So, but it's okay that we use Western medicine and get sick and get addicted. That's okay. They're fine with the going to the hospital, but they're not okay with using a medicine from a culture that's like, please, I'm here to help you. So the people in the nor far north, that's what I guess it's referred to in Ontario, in the far north, they're completely open. They're like, oh, it's the plants, it's traditional medicine, because it is traditional medicine. And we're, you know, if we look at the mitochondrial DNA of our relationship with the people in Peru, they're our brothers. Mm -hmm. Like we have a ancient lineage uh, down to Peru. So it's very, it, it seems hypo like a lot of hypocrisy happens uh, in the urban centers and in the northern regions, they're just so open, open to anything because they see how the drugs are making people sick and they're like, we need something else. And they still work toward that. Hmm. So it's, it's not well received in the urban centers. I uh, will say that for sure. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Tamamuri has been really helpful. Now, tell me if this is a touchy subject, but I know one of the things that Jim was talking about doing was uh, providing ayahuasca or uh, kamarampi, which is what Maestro Juan calls it in Ashaninkin, um, but bringing that to First Nations communities. And that's something that one of my teachers, Gabor Mate, did in British Columbia a number of years ago was to offer ayahuasca ceremonies for First Nations people dealing with trauma and addiction and uh, until that was shut down by Health Canada. Uh, so I know it's a touchy subject and if you don't want to go there, we don't have to go there. It's a touchy subject, absolutely. I, um, the Indigenous people that I've worked with have had the medicine. And when they've had the medicine, they became more of themselves. 
they wear their medallions. They have a sense of big pride for that, for the Camarampi ceremony, big pride. And they, they hear God and I, I understand what they mean. So the indigenous people do find it very effective. They find the medicine very effective and will always call once a year to, to find an ayahuasca ceremony just to, to get in, in a good way. Because if you can drink, I, I refer to it as love, but if you can drink God and have a sip, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful to hear you say that, that they feel more themselves. Um, because that was my experience, and I think that was like the real healing for me is the first time I drank ayahuasca, um, I felt like it was a homecoming, like I was coming home to myself. And just that reconnection with who I really am at my core helped resolve a lot of the issues that were on the surface, you know? The things that I was going after, like how do I heal my uh, my addiction? How do I heal my my anger issues and all of these things? How do I heal my anxiety and and really the the real answer was to reconnect with who I am and uh, that like being connected to that uh, after that, like a lot of self correction tape takes place because I've got a, a new reference point for everything I do, all of my relationships. There's like this new reference point and that just leads to a natural kind of self correcting process. Yeah. You don't need to be told how to heal. Yeah. The, the plant helps you do that yourself. Yeah. Or have like some kind of um, behavioral modification therapy or something, right? <laughs> that it's like, takes years. <laughs> yeah. And you're kind of like working against the core issue that may still be active, right? Um, but if you can get to the core issue, this disconnection from our, our truest self, um, then all the other stuff just starts to naturally come into alignment with that. Yes, and that's what I saw with uh, with the indigenous people. See, the the one man who I met in January 2017 in that what the Wapkika crisis, he was the first responder. He responded to both of those suicides. He carried those bodies. He revived those bodies. You know, I, I really sad. At one point, there's an AED, like the defibrillator. He took the defibrillator off the wall to try to revive this girl and it failed Mm. and she died. And he had her face in his mind forever for like for years and then got stuck into drugs because we're trying to forget that face and he could never forget the face. And so I got a phone call from his dad. He's like, he's in trouble. Help me. And I'm like, great, no problem. So Jim and I helped him as much as we could. And I think it was a, a week after he had drank his Tamamori, he, w- he was finally back to himself. I'm like, oh my God, where have you been? He's like the face in my head. I, can't, I couldn't get rid of it. And, you know, after he did tobacco purges and after the Camarampi, after the Tamamori, he was shiny and the most beautiful man 
so that example, I, I, it's just so heartwarming and deepening. Uh, it, it's it's everything that that we we work toward. Mm. So he he came into himself, and now he enacts his teachings. He asks me, "How do I prepare this tree? How do I prepare that tree? Can you ship me medicine? Can you ship me?" Yeah. So we'll we continue to work together, and and it's all really great. It's really great. This man finally came back to himself, and it's a very good friend of mine. And um, we both came home through Camarampi. Hmm. Beautiful. Um, you mentioned tobacco, and that's another really interesting connection for me is uh, the relationship that Indigenous people from the North and Indigenous people from the South have with tobacco. Um, now, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, is the usage of tobacco similar in both places? Um, because it wasn't until I went to South America that I was, you know, asked to drink tobacco and have it like poured up my nose and everything like, <laughs> like more than just like offering tobacco to a, a plant that you're going to pick or into the sweat lodge fire or something. That's the way I was introduced to it in the North, but in the South, it was like, get tobacco in your body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, no, it's totally different, completely different because we still use sacred uh, tobaccos in a sacred way in Canada, but it's not sacred tobacco. It's kind of like I describe our tobacco as say, say you had a, a, a child that played with a cat and always dressed the cat up in clothes and, and always poked at the cat and teased the cat. And then the cat's really mean later. Hmm. So tobacco here is kind of like a cat that was abused. When you go and touch it, it just scratches you right away. It, you can't pet this thing. You can't do anything with this thing because it's going to hurt you. That's kind of the way we use tobacco here in Canada. Like we put tobacco out. We don't blow tobacco for our plants because we shouldn't be smoking tobacco, but we still, like we still blow tobacco when we smoke a pipe. Like you're not supposed to inhale it at that time either. It, it's absolutely different. It's kind of like huh, the story of the smallpox blankets. Like you give, you give somebody a blanket in a good gesture, but you actually put a disease on it. It's mm. kind of the same thing. It's like, Oh, they give you a good medicine, tobacco, very powerful healing medicine. And then I'm just going to put this disease in here and let's see how it works, how it goes for you guys. And then we become addicted because nicotine is very addictive. But I'm going to say there's other alternative compounds in uh, the commercial tobacco that cause more addiction than ever. Because when I can smoke the traditional tobacco from South America, I don't feel a need to have another one. But I smoked commercial cigarettes for 20 years and it wasn't until I only smoked mapacho that I could get away from it. So we do not use it the same way. People put tobacco down for their plants before they pick them, but I'm going to tell you, you're going to poison that plant if you put that tobacco down. Like mm. if you just looked at it, as I'm looking at it as a biologist, it's not something that's healthy for a plant to in ingest itself. But in South America... The plant is grown with love, blessed. There's tobaqueros, so people that are specifically for growing, curing, preparing this one plant, like the poleros. They were mostly 
people that did um, the Palo Santo, like that prepared that tree. And then they prepare all of the other barks, right? So um, we use it much differently and I use it differently now. And, and the people here don't use it. Like you still, to ask a question to an elder, you have to pass tobacco. It doesn't matter what kind of tobacco, you pass tobacco and they have to answer you. It's kind of like a contractual agreement more than it is uh, something that we drink and put into our bodies the way we do in South America. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, how has that been received by people in the North when you start mm-hmm. working with tobacco and the way you learn from Maestro Juan? Uh, we're, we're just to let people know, like when yeah. you go see Maestro Juan, this is my experience, is uh, first thing you do is you meet with him for consultation. You tell him what's going on with you and he'll prescribe a, a plant for you to diet while you're at his center. And for me, um, on my last trip, it was Bobinsana. Oh. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's the reaction I have too when I think about Bobinsana. <laughs> but, uh, and then the next thing you do before your first ayahuasca ceremony is you'll do a tobacco ceremony where you'll drink a really concentrated brew of tobacco mm-hmm. juice. And that leads to a massive purge. Uh, and then you're kind of ready to have your first ayahuasca ceremony. And then in the ceremony, Maestro Juan is blowing tobacco smoke all over the place. Uh, so it's, it's really like a central medicine in the whole South American, um, plant medicine, uh, tradition of which there are many, but the, the one common element you, you always see, I think, is is the use of tobacco, or at least in my experience. Mm-hmm. Oh, ah, all of our experiences. Yeah, the tobacco, like the the mapacho, or referred to in Latin, Nicotiana rustica, it is the master healer. It is the master that helps to direct every one of those barks every one of those trees, it's the, the master of all of it. It's a master teacher. So you go to it first, always mm-hmm. go to it first. You can diet with tobacco, drink tobacco. You can, you know, make a tobacco snuff rapé and, and put that in your nose or have the tobacco water in your nose. Yeah. It's, it's so effective. We don't have that same, we do not have that here <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. And it would be really effective if, if we did. Mm-hmm. Have you tried to work with um, like a Nicotiana, Virginia, like the the northern breeds of tobacco? And if you have, have you found that it's as effective as Mapacho, the Rustica? Uh, Yes. So my husband is more of a tobacero than than anything. (laughs) He doesn't smoke tobacco. He uses it appropriately. (laughs) <laughs> I smoke it. I have a love for it. I love tobacco um, too. Yeah, I know. It, it's it's very lovely, but it does, you don't need to do it all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I, I lost my train. I, I, went I was just wondering if you found the, the northern breeds of tobacco, oh, if they were yes. as effective as the mapacho. Yeah, absolutely. They, they still have that powerful spirit, that tobacco spirit with them. Uh, it's that the Virginia that thing was bred for smoking. So that is a hundreds and hundreds of years of artificial selection to make it what it is. While the Nicotiana rustica does not have 
it, it was for shamans grew it forever and ever and ever. And even in, you know, like in the peyote traditions, they'll still use rustica. Like the last place I got rustica seeds from was Arizona. Hmm. So it's still that, that is still the, the sacred. It's a, a certain scent. There's a scent with the Nicotiana, Virginia. It's not very, I don't, I don't like it because it smells a lot like commercial tobacco because it is. Yeah. Um, and it's also the curing process and everything that, that uh, the tobacco companies go through to make the smokes what they really are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just as effective though. And it's just as powerful a gift. Yeah. Thanks mm-hmm. for that. Okay. Well, you know, I, I think I could talk to you all day long. I find this really fascinating how um, you're able to illuminate for me a lot of the uh, the similarities and the differences between the northern and southern traditions. I find you're just like a, a fascinating person to mm-hmm. help me understand this. And, you know, it feels um, important to me because I work with First Nations people here in Canada. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really just happy, I guess, that you're out there doing this work and that you are being uh, a bridge between these two worlds. Uh, I think it's really important. And from everything that I've heard, the, the traditions of the South have really been helping people in the North reclaim their true identity and uh, reclaim some of their own traditions. So I think that's just so important in the healing process. Oh, it's very important. And it's a worthwhile work. And you don't make as much money as you want to, but I don't think that's why I'm on earth (laughs) yeah i like to say i'm rich in other ways you know yeah the work i do is so rewarding and you know we'll figure out how to pay the rent somehow (laughs) they always do though you always do there's always there's always help and you know when you help many people they'll always help you later like and and if they don't there's no someone will always help Mm -hmm. i always I, i know that and it, it is a big topic, like you're saying. There's, there's years, years and years and years to talk about it. Yeah. Well, thanks for your time today. And if it's not asking too much, in that presentation I watched online, you sang a song that me, with my uh, experience in both the Northern and Southern traditions, I could hear how you've blended the singing traditions of the South with the singing traditions of the North. Yeah, I did. Would it be too much to ask you to, to offer us a song to close our conversation? Oh, I would love that. Oh, I love that. Do you want that song? See that song, whatever comes to your heart. Well, that song's really sweet because it's a, the song about the hummingbird and about all the women singing and about calling God to you. But then I sang it in a, a traditional, you know, indigenous Canadian tune, but I heard it in my first ayahuasca ceremony. I heard that song, like I heard them blended. And then one day I was able to blend them. Mm. Yeah, I would love to. As long as the, the it sounds okay right right here, like yeah. Yeah, let's give it a try, and then if it's uh, breaking up, maybe we can just unplug and try it some other way. I don't know. Yeah. Well, how about I? I'll give you a uh, just a little bit, and then you just test your sound. Okay. 
How's that? Sounds beautiful. Okay, let's. I'll start again for you. Uh, thank you so much for that. <coughs> oh my God, I was going to cough. <coughs> no it, problem. That's how it goes in ceremony, you know? It's like mm-hmm. uh, Maestro's singing away and uh, he's got a cough. And so it's not performance, right? It's because we're smoking. <laughs> we're smoking, singing. And some of the times when we're singing, we're, we're blowing the tobacco smoke too. So you got to be able to master that stuff. <coughs> yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for sharing. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you're looking for support on your medicine path, you can become a Patreon subscriber and have access to hours of yoga practice resources, podcast extras, and a lot more. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. If you'd like more personal support, you can book an online session with me at brianjames.ca. Thanks so much for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until next time we meet on the medicine path.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.